one problem, perhaps above all others, is America's most urgent, existential, and difficult, the problem of tribalism. Many of the other key solutions to our demo crisis, such as solving gerrymandering or campaign finance, are relatively easy and straightforward, and we'll get to those in the season finale. But they will remain nearly impossible to solve as long as our tribal problem persists. I'm Rob Cohen, physician, army veteran, scientist, and your host. This is Demo Crises, Democracy, Demography, and Demoralization. To begin a discussion of tribalism, we could start with a story about long-off tribes, one that we might be able to look at dispassionately. Our diverse world abounds with examples of destructive tribalism that both fascinate and instruct. Israelis versus Palestinians, Sunnis versus Shia, the long struggle between the Vietnamese and the Chinese, Nigeria's struggle between Yoruba, Hausa, and Igbo, Catholics versus Protestants in 17th century Europe, the Bloods versus the Crips in cities across America, or the tribal animus all over Papua New Guinea. But instead, let's start with our favorite bard, William Shakespeare. Shakespeare actually has quite a bit to say about the downward spiral of tribalism and its terrible consequences. If I were to ask you, which famous Shakespeare play is chiefly about tribalism? The answer is Romeo and Juliet. Romeo and Juliet is not a love story. It's a story about humanity's tendency for destructive tribalism and our tendency to only abandon tribalism after complete catastrophe. Here's the prologue to Romeo and Juliet, which lays out the grim tragedy to which the audience will bear witness. The long-standing feud between Montagues and Capulets in Verona, which started eons ago over some forgotten insult, continues raging, unabated, until two people united in true love kill themselves instead of marrying. Only then do the two families bury the hatchet, after perhaps the greatest tragedy imaginable. Two households, both alike in dignity, in fair Verona, where we lay our scene. From ancient grudge break to new mutiny, where civil blood makes civil hands unclean. From forth the fatal loins of these two foes, a pair of star-crossed lovers take their life, whose misadventured piteous overthrows doth with death bury their parents' strife. Their fearful passage of their death-marked love and the continuance of their parents' rage, which, but their children's end not could remove, is now the two hours' traffic of our stage. The which, if with your patience ears attend, what here shall miss, our toil shall strive to mend. Romeo and Juliet abounds with foreboding warnings for tribal 21st century America. Shakespeare even describes the feud as partisan in Act 1, Scene 1, and calls the two sides enemies of peace. To briefly summarize the plot, Romeo and Juliet fall in love at a banquet, but because he is a Montague and she a Capulet, they cannot marry and agonize over what to do. Tribalism seems a monstrous obstacle to their love. In the famous balcony scene, Juliet lays bare their awful dilemma while Romeo, admiring her starry-eyed hiding in a bush, listens. Oh, Romeo, Romeo, 
Wherefore art thou, Romeo? Deny thy father, and refuse thy name. Or, if thou wilt not, be but sworn my love, and I'll no longer be a Capulet. Tis but thy name that is my enemy. Thou art thyself, though not a Montague. What's Montague? It is nor hand, nor foot, nor arm, nor face, nor any other part belonging to a man. Oh, be some other name. What's in a name? That which we call a rose, by any other word, would smell as sweet. So Romeo would, were he not Romeo called, retain that dear perfection which he owes without that title. Romeo, doff thy name, and for thy name, which is no part of thee, take all myself. After a hilarious exchange in which Romeo appears from hiding and agrees to also abandon his name, and then she pretends not to recognize him, and then to not be that into him so as not to seem too easy. Sound familiar? And he acts like Tom Cruise on Oprah's couch. They finally agree that they will marry in secret since her brothers would kill him if they knew. Tragically, she is right. Our characters soon start dropping like flies. Mercutio, Romeo's friend, dead. Killed by Tybalt. Tybalt was Juliet's brother. He gets killed by Romeo himself exacting revenge for Mercutio's death. Then, to avoid her father marrying her off, Juliet fakes her own death and puts herself into a coma. She sends word to Romeo of the plan so that they can run away. Romeo doesn't get the message, finds her apparently dead, and buys a potion to kill himself. Juliet awakens, finds her true love dead, and plunges a knife deep into her heart. As the two characters lay crumpled, dead on each other in front of the audience, Juliet's heart bleeding all over Romeo and the stage and the audience's conscience. The Prince of Verona condemns all tribalism and Montague and Capulet finally bury the hatchet. Where be these enemies? Capulet, Montague, see what scourge is laid upon your hate, that heaven finds means to kill your joys with love. O brother Montague, give me thy hand. This is my daughter's dowry, for no more can I demand. But I can give thee more. For I will raise her statue in pure gold, that while Verona by that name is known, there shall no figure at such a rate be set as that of true and faithful Juliet. As rich shall Romeo by his lady lie, poor sacrifices of our enmity. A glooming peace this morning with it brings, the sun for sorrow will not show its head. Go hence to have more talk of these sad things. Some shall be pardoned and some punished. For never was a story of more woe than this of Juliet and her Romeo. And so the downward spiral of tribalism ended only after it brought the worst tragedy imaginable. Nothing else could end it. Not the state, not appeals from each side, not cooler heads, nothing. Each side became more incensed and committed crimes against the other. Who knows how small was the first offense? Perhaps centuries ago, a simple misunderstanding or ignoble act set this tribalism in motion. Then eventually, after a downward spiral, both sides lost their precious child and the world lost the purest love ever known. Now that Shakespeare has weighed in, let's return 
to the horrendous tribalism in the United States today and the perfect, painful epitome of how bad it is getting, the tribalism permeating every aspect of the Brett Kavanaugh Supreme Court hearings. Mr. Chairman, Ranking Member Feinstein, members of the committee, thank you. On September 27, 2018, the day that Dr. Christine Blasey Ford and Judge Brett Kavanaugh both testified about an alleged sexual assault in 1982, it was the culmination of at least three century-long tribal conflicts in the United States colliding on a single day in a single building about a single seat on the Supreme Court. These three tribal conflicts were between religious voters and secular voters, men versus women, and of course, Democrats versus Republicans. Most people on all sides believe fervently in the righteousness of their side and therefore, by definition, the villainy of the other. They all know true stories that paint their side in a positive light and the other side badly. This doesn't mean there is moral equivalence, but there is perceived moral equivalence, showing we are truly a house divided against ourselves as if that wasn't obvious enough already. It was an ugly day for our democracy, for everyone. Kavanaugh was ultimately confirmed with 51 votes, showing just how divided we are. Now, of course, this tragedy did not happen in a vacuum and comes at the end of a century-long tribal spiral. Let's recap only the recent history of how we got to this point, just the past decade to start. When Barack Obama won the presidency in 2008, he came into office aided by a filibuster-proof majority in the Senate with 60 Democratic senators. Emboldened, he attempted to push through major Democratic priorities, Republicans would say he overreached, such as universal health care, legislation drafted mainly by Nancy Pelosi and congressional Democrats, and pushed through Congress with zero Republican votes in either the House or Senate. He also nominated two mainstream liberal and female Supreme Court justices, Sonia Sotomayor and Elena Kagan. In response, he experienced a tidal wave of backlash, first losing the House in the Tea Party wave of 2010, then losing the Senate in 2014. Remember, he had a 60-vote majority at one point. Throughout his term, Republicans made his life as difficult as they could. Of course, Democrats would say they were obstructionist, but Republicans would say they were just fighting for their values. Republicans filibustered many of Obama's judicial nominees to lower courts, so Democratic Senate Majority Leader Harry Reid abolished the judicial filibuster in 2013, breaking 200 years of precedent. Republicans said Democrats would regret that decision, and boy, would they ever. When Republican Senator Mitch McConnell became Majority Leader in 2014, he slowed judicial confirmations to the slowest level since the Truman administration, confirming only 22 justices and leaving 107 vacancies for the next Republican president. Democrats, for comparison, in the last two years of George W. Bush's presidency, confirmed three times as many federal judges. The most prominent vacancy occurred in February 2016, when conservative Supreme Court Justice Antonin Scalia died in his sleep, giving President Obama a chance to nominate a third Supreme Court justice and shift the court to the left. President Obama nominated a moderate white man to the Supreme Court, Merrick Garland. McConnell said Garland wouldn't even get a vote, the Judiciary Committee wouldn't even hold hearings, and the McConnell rule 
that no confirmation should happen in an election year was born out of the ether. Republicans made up absurd criteria of when they should and should not confirm a judge, saying the last time the Senate had confirmed a justice nominated by a president of the opposite party in an election year was 1880. But even if that's strictly true, the last time the Senate had done what McConnell did was even earlier, in 1866 after the Lincoln administration, although what they did then was simply shrink the size of the court so Andrew Johnson couldn't get his justice. So you have to go back still further to 1852 to the Fillmore administration before the Civil War when the Senate last did what McConnell did and blocked a nominee for no defensible reason other than his party. And the fact that the last time this happened was within a decade of the Civil War should make a shudder for our tribalism today. Further undermining McConnell's supposed rule, Anthony Kennedy was confirmed 97-0 to zero by the Democratic-controlled Senate in February 1988. Yes, after they had blocked Robert Bork, but still, Kennedy was also a moderate justice fitting the divided government of the time. McConnell knows this because he voted for him. So Democrats felt robbed by Gorsuch, the first justice nominated under the McConnell rule, while Republicans felt it was a dirty fight they needed to make for their principles. It would not be the last fight in this downward spiral. Stunningly, McConnell's strategy worked even better than expected. The Supreme Court vacancy galvanized the conservative base in the 2016 election, and a Republican president, however flawed, was narrowly elected with the explicit promise he would nominate conservative justices who would overturn Roe v. Wade. When Neil Gorsuch was nominated and filibustered, Mitch McConnell abolished the filibuster, using Harry Reid's decision three years earlier as an excuse. Remember, the filibuster was put in place when Vice President Aaron Burr presided over the Senate more than 200 years ago. Reid and McConnell broke that precedent together, bipartisanly, in only three years. Still, Roe v. Wade, perhaps the most emotional and tribal issue of our time, was safe. But then, in 2018, Anthony Kennedy, the last remaining swing vote on abortion, announced his retirement reportedly in collusion with McConnell to ensure another conservative took his place. Remember, Kennedy was no liberal hero. Nominated by Reagan, his legacy includes being the deciding vote in both the Bush v. Gore decision in 2000 and the awful Citizens United case in 2010. To fill Kennedy's vacancy, McConnell brazenly reversed his own rule, proving he was completely devoid of principle besides hunger for power, and set in to push through Trump's next nominee with the narrowest of illegitimate margins. Trump played true to form and nominated another white man, a former Bush operative, who seemed very likely to overturn Roe and even protect Trump from possible investigation. McConnell planned to use it as a wedge issue in the 2018 midterms when a dozen red state Democrats were up for re-election. It was a naked, hypocritical, brazen power grab that was bad for the country. It was just too much for the Democrats. In the year of hashtag MeToo, with a white male president, who had embraced neo-Nazis and was cruel to women wherever he could, and they threw everything they could at the nominee. 
They failed to derail Kavanaugh in committee hearings, and he looked on his way to what every Democrat felt was an unjust and profoundly impactful confirmation for a lifetime appointment. Democrats faced an ugly choice between seeing Roe v. Wade overturned by Trump's personal choice or fighting dirty. They concluded the stakes were too high and they chose to fight. Democrats waited until the last minute to leak to the media an allegation of sexual assault 36 years ago against Judge Kavanaugh, one that would be impossible to prove or disprove, but certain to cause emotions to explode and deeply impact Kavanaugh's and Ford's family, as well as their children. There's no doubt it was a dirty tactic by whoever leaked it. But was it dirtier than anything McConnell had done? or that Harry Reid had done, or that Kavanaugh had done when he was a Bush operative prosecuting Bill Clinton? The hearings were rough on everyone. Dr. Ford was an extremely credible witness, especially with Democrats, and most Republicans seemed to believe Brett Kavanaugh, who produced detailed calendars to support his innocence. Although the July 1st entry in his calendar seemed to support Ford's account, it seems more likely to me that he was lying since he had lied about so much else during his testimony, including the meaning of various words in his yearbook, whereas she had no incentive six years ago to bring this up in therapy. Ultimately, after some more posturing, the supposed swing votes, male and female, Jeff Flake and Susan Collins, voted not with their conscience, but with their party to confirm Brett Kavanaugh. It wasn't male or female gender that determined their votes. It was their political party. The Republicans confirmed a partisan justice nominated by a tribal president on a party-line vote in a nakedly hypocritical power grab that will preserve their majority on the court for a generation, which, as we will see, is part of the reason we're living in this dystopia already. Few could argue that the country is better off after this fight. It didn't have to be this way, but it was because we are in the middle of a downward spiral of tribalism. Both sides have committed real sins, which legitimately outraged the other side and then gave them an excuse to do the exact same thing a few years later. The deck was stacked slightly in favor of Republicans, and they leveraged their small advantage with great cunning as if great tribal stakes were in play. Both sides definitely hate each other more after this fight. McConnell insists everything will be fine, that this is normal partisan bickering that will blow over. But I say this is not a pendulum swinging. It is a downward spiral of tribalism. How ugly will the next affront be? Remember the fate of Romeo and Juliet? Tribal hatred doesn't magically disappear. Both sides build up more and more resentment and real memories of injustice that make reconciliation impossible. Ask the Israelis and Palestinians how that's going. And sometimes the spiral ends in real-life cataclysm. The last time America was truly united was after September 11, 2001. As long as politicians like McConnell hold power, it's hard to see any other path to unity. And of course, this didn't start with Barack Obama. The second Bush administration was plagued by bitter partisan hatred, as was the Clinton administration. 
Many studies indicate that our bitter increase in tribal partisanship began in 1994 when Newt Gingrich led the Republican revolution against Clintonian overreach. Rush Limbaugh's tribal radio show debuted nationally in 1988 and Fox News debuted in 1995. Certainly, the 90s were an inflection point with Newt Gingrich, Rush Limbaugh, and Fox News the central villains. For example, during the eulogy for Senator John McCain, Democrat Joe Biden said that he and McCain used to sit with each other during Senate debates in the 80s. And then in the middle of the 90s, both sides' leadership started to say to each of them, you know, it really looks bad when you're sitting with someone from the other party. They noticed it was in the 90s. It's a shame to lose that kind of thing from the Senate. Now, it's certainly true that partisan hatred extends all the way back to the beginning of our republic, epitomized by the election of 1800, but certainly with many fractious elections in between. But a lot of the truly tribal hatred in the 20th century really did increase in the 90s, after our common enemy of the USSR disappeared. It is not a coincidence that the spike in tribalism in the United States came three years after the collapse of our mortal enemy. As we saw in the episodes on the rise and fall of empires, when a large empire loses its common enemy, it begins to squabble amongst itself. For the United States, it took less than a decade for our Asabia to dissipate, and our new tribalism has culminated in President Trump and the brazen McConnell rule, which, remember, we last saw during the time of the Civil War. So, does Mitch McConnell's stunt portend a second Civil War? Many people are afraid so. Former Republican Joe Scarborough notes that President Trump isn't a conservative, but an anti-liberal. His voters voted not so much for what he stood for as what he stood against. And today that's true of many on both sides. That's what tribalism is. How in the world can we fix it? We need to find a more elegant solution to our tribalism. I propose that we use an out-of-the-box method from the mathematical discipline of game theory. In fact, one of my central theses is that game theory can be used to solve many intractable problems. A central premise of game theory, and you might recall it from the movie A Beautiful Mind, is that self-interest doesn't always lead to the best outcomes. Sometimes, we have to explicitly make a commitment to cooperate and to police it in order to produce an outcome that is better for all of us than if we each pursued our own narrow best interest. A Beautiful Mind is about the mathematician John Nash, who invented game theory. The example from the movie is five men trying to pick up women in a bar. If we all go for the blonde... We block each other. Not a single one of us is going to get her. So then we go for her friends. But they will all give us the cold shoulder because nobody likes to be second choice. But what if no one goes for the blonde? We don't get in each other's way. And we don't insult the other girls. That's the only way we win. The introductory case in a course on game theory is called the prisoner's dilemma. Here's the situation. Two prisoners are accused of a serious crime, let's say murder, and are being questioned in separate rooms with no means to communicate. 
If they both confess, they'll each get 10 years in prison. If neither confess, they'll both be indicted on tax evasion and get off with only a year in prison. Clearly, they'd both be better off if they cooperated and avoided confessing. However, the FBI structures their incentives cleverly and offers them a deal. If one confesses but the other doesn't, the confessor gets to walk free, while the guy who tried to hold fast to the cooperative agreement will serve all 20 years. So the logic works like this. Even though both sides know they'd be better off if they cooperated and neither confessed, they also know that the other guy might rat them out. If you confess, I do better off by confessing, since then I get 10 years instead of 20. But if you don't confess, I also do better off by confessing, because then I get to walk free while you serve all 20 years. Since we're both better off confessing, no matter what the other guy does, we both confess, and we both serve 10 years like dumb criminals. That is called a Nash Equilibrium a suboptimal outcome forced on us by human tendencies to pursue our own best interest even though we'd all be better off by cooperating. A good example of this is the relationship between the United States and China when it comes to climate change. The U.S. and China would both be better off if we cooperated to phase out greenhouse gases and build a green global economy. Unfortunately, if we stop polluting but China doesn't, they gain short-term advantage over us and vice versa. So instead of cooperating, human nature means that we fall into a Nash equilibrium where we both keep polluting and we all inherit a sicker planet that ultimately will be very bad for both the U.S. and China. Republicans and Democrats are also locked in a prisoner's dilemma. Both sides would be better off if we could agree on civil discourse to compromise, to be honest and honorable, to learn from each other and work together to leverage our mutual strengths to build a better country. Each side, as much as we don't want to admit it, does have a lot of strengths crucial to America's greatness. For example, Blue America, like Silicon Valley and New York, produce a lot of the technological and intellectual prowess that make America great, while Red America produces the majority of our proud military and food. And both areas of America play key roles in our chugging economy. Unfortunately, in politics, if one side behaves honorably, the other side can gain major advantage by acting dishonorably, and vice versa. So instead, both sides retreat to a Nash equilibrium where we are all worse off and acting like vile hooligans with a discourse epitomized by Newt Gingrich, Maxine Waters, Donald Trump, and the Brett Kavanaugh confirmation hearings. To repeat a point we've made in earlier episodes, it is fallacious to assume that blindly pursuing our own best interest in a democracy will lead to an invisible hand of continually improving outcomes. Rather, the math of game theory shows the exact opposite happens. We get trapped in a suboptimal Nash equilibrium where both sides behave dishonorably, injure each other, and tear the country's unity apart. This can all be displayed mathematically with simple box diagrams. I've done so on our website, democrises.com. Check it out. Now, before you get too upset, it is actually quite easy to solve a prisoner's dilemma. Again, the math is on democrises.com, but in plain English, the two prisoners can maintain the cooperative equilibrium where neither confesses as long as three conditions are met. First, the game is not played only once as in the original prisoner's dilemma, but repeatedly, 
every day where you can see what the other guy did last time and gain future benefits by continually cooperating. Second, both sides agree to maintain the cooperative outcome as long as the other guy does. But once their partner cheats, then they will henceforth lose all trust and revert to the Nash equilibrium. And third, both sides value the future sufficiently that the benefit of defecting once does not outweigh the benefits of maintaining cooperation. That third point is key. Both sides must value the future enough that the benefit of defecting today does not outweigh the benefits of cooperating tomorrow. What matters here is both the payoffs of the game and individual preferences. If the payoffs of cooperation are high, it's very easy to keep cooperating. Well, if the payoffs of cheating are high, it's going to be very hard, especially if one or both players only cares about the present. In math terms, we call this the discount rate, the rate at which you discount future benefits as you consider whether it's worth it to undertake delayed gratification. Some people have very high discount rates, meaning they place great value on future happiness and are willing to delay gratification and avoid bad behavior in the present while other people have very low discount rates, meaning they really only care about the moment. With the latter type, not surprisingly, it's very, very hard to maintain a cooperative agreement since their personal characteristics make it so appealing for them to cheat. Unfortunately, in America, our current president has a discount rate of nearly zero, which is why he's cheated so much throughout his life and all but broken our spirit of cooperation. Some of you may have heard of the famous marshmallow experiment, which shows how discount rates do in fact vary across the population. To summarize very briefly, five-year-old children were offered a choice. You can have one marshmallow now or two marshmallows 15 minutes from now if you avoid eating this marshmallow. Some kids were unable to avoid eating the one marshmallow, while other kids were able to delay gratification and were rewarded with two marshmallows. Well, they followed these kids into adulthood, and they found that the kids that were able to delay gratification at age five had much better life outcomes, including things like income, education, poverty, etc. So discount rates are at least partially inherent. But that's just the prisoner's dilemma. The math of the tribalist's dilemma is still more interesting. Unlike the prisoner's dilemma, where each side is simply maximizing their own interest, the tribalist has an additional incentive to act like a jerk. He enjoys the pain of the other side. The tribalist is willing to take a lower current and future payoff if the tribe he hates suffers more. In other words, the tribalist hates their opponent more than he loves his country. Such a person is very, very hard to cooperate with. Furthermore, Whereas in the simple prisoner's dilemma, both sides get stuck sharing in the misery, the math of the tribalist dilemma works out to end even worse. Since each side is willing to suffer if it makes the other side suffer, the fighting gets worse and worse as both sides try to get the other side to capitulate completely. Tribalists would rather rule a lousy society than participate in a flourishing one with people they loathe. Now, before we lose all hope, the math still says it's possible to prevail. Game theory shows us four strategies to break out of the worst Nash equilibrium and to move our society toward a cooperative cycle. Option one, both sides must move from cheating to cooperating simultaneously. 
if one side moves first, the other side will cheat. So leaders from both sides must meet secretly and emerge with an agreement. Like Richard Nixon and Chairman Mao in 1972, or Tip O'Neill and Ronald Reagan in 1982. Another strategy to solve the tribalist dilemma, our second one, involves changing the payoffs, especially the payoffs of cooperating. If you do the math, you find a surprising outcome. Making the pain of constant fighting even more painful actually doesn't solve the problem. Punishing Trump for being tribal is not going to make the situation better. Instead, it just increases the chance that one side will capitulate, the side for whom submission is less miserable. And that's why that's exactly the strategy that Trump and McConnell are pursuing. On the other hand, increasing the payoffs for cooperating has enormous benefits if you want a cooperative outcome, not surprisingly. If we rewarded those on our side who forge compromise rather than mounting a radical primary challenge against them, we could have a much better country. Instead, we do the opposite. When Republican Jeff Flake was asked about the one-week delay he forced to get an FBI investigation of Kavanaugh, he confirmed exactly this intuition. Senator Flake, you've announced that you're not running for re-election, and I wonder, could you have done this if you were running for no. re-election? <laughs> no, <laughs> not a chance. Not a chance. No, no. Because politics has become too sharp, too partisan? Yeah, there's no value to reaching across the aisle. There's no currency for that anymore. There's no incentive. Ronald Reagan said, the person who agrees with me 80% of the time is a friend and ally, not a 20% traitor. People don't even agree with their spouses 80% of the time. And I suspect the average is much lower. It's unreasonable to expect your political allies to agree with you more than your spouse does in a country of 330 million people. And yet, too many Americans do, and they reduce the payoffs of cooperating to nearly zero. Along this line, we could also just pass laws that are good for the whole country to show the benefits of cooperation. But again, this would diminish the power of those who enjoy tribalism so they do all they can to squash good laws. That's why McConnell acts the way he does. Our third strategy to defeat the tribalist dilemma is to differentiate the true troublemakers from the rest and appeal to them intelligently. Now, how would you get through to this sizable group? You could consider acquiescence, anger, shaming, propaganda, rebuttal, or solutions. Let's immediately dismiss acquiescence because then our opponent wins without a fight, but anger makes our opponent defensive. Propaganda won't work either because then we stoop to the president's level and he's better at it. It backfired with Kavanaugh. What about facts? What about simply trying to rebut every lie that comes out of the president's mouth? That actually won't work. And the neuroscience of debunking myths shows that humans would rather a false belief to explain something in their brain than have no understanding at all. So we have to replace the lies with a more credible belief, which is sometimes hard to explain simply. Therefore, there remains only one way to peel off the sizable chunk of the other side who are voting with tribalists. Winning the debate with them with honorable, understandable, and actionable solutions. If Democrats want to oppose Trump, they haven't really tried this yet. They don't really have an alternative to immigration, at least not one that they say clearly. So when Trump gives his partisan rhetoric on immigration, it looks like he's the only one with answers, however distasteful they are. Or what would this have looked like in the Kavanaugh situation, 
Democrats could have figured out whatever Flake and Collins needed or wanted and given it to them. Propose a solution to make Flake or Collins's life easy. Collins was certainly open on the abortion issue, and Flake would have been open on checking Trump. At the end of the day, from Flake and Collins's perspective, they were damned if they did vote for Kavanaugh and damned if they didn't. They were boxed in by tribalism, so they retreated to their tribe. I want to be clear. I would have voted against Kavanaugh, but that was their perspective. And if you want to persuade people currently on the other side, you have to stand in their shoes. So solutions are the key to winning the battle for the persuadables on the other side. That's why this podcast is about solutions. It's the media's job to educate the public on solutions, but right now they're largely failing, caught up in the outrage trap. That's why Trump stokes the outrage trap, because it keeps the game on his turf. Is this game fair? Not even close. But as Tom Friedman counseled us, Fairness is not on the menu. We should not expect an existential fight against an amoral man to be fair. The fourth strategy to maintain the cooperative equilibrium in the tribalist dilemma is to have a competent and well-resourced enforcement mechanism for cooperation. A perfect case study is General Petraeus's Iraq surge of 2007. It shows all of our four strategies. In Iraq in 2007, the civil war between Sunnis and Shiites was completely out of control. The tribal animus that America had ignored when it went in was creating hell on earth. A full-blown insurgency was decimating the country. American soldiers were being constantly blown up by IEDs. Death squads on both sides were committing horrible atrocities. The Sunnis were beheading their enemies while Shiites drilled holes in children's heads. And yet... When General Petraeus showed up with a competent strategy of protecting the population, capturing or killing the worst leaders of both sides, and investing in economic development to give all Iraqis a better life in a cooperative situation, the civil war ended within three years. At least until President Obama pulled all the troops out in 2011 against the judgment of most military leaders. The data document how Iraq went from more than a thousand weekly attacks when Petraeus took over in early 2007 to fewer than 300 by the end of the year and nearly zero when America pulled out. Indeed, the Petraeus model of 2007 is the perfect model for America today because it is analogous yet much more severe. Fortunately for us, nobody is being beheaded in America right now, although the hatred is almost as bad and some communities suffer way too much violence. Yet Petraeus took this tribal war and brought about prosperous peace in three years. He employed all four strategies. First, he ensured that Sunnis and Shiites moved simultaneously by protecting the entire population from the death squads rather than only one tribe. Second, he severely increased the payoffs for cooperation as he promoted one successful economic project after another and put the angry out-of-work young people back to work. Third, he explicitly pursued only what he called the irreconcilables relentlessly, killing or capturing them, and amazingly, they turned out to be a very small percentage of the insurgency. Most of the population turned out to just be low-level insurgents choosing between bad options, fighting or hiding. 
This stands in contrast to Hillary Clinton's great mistake in the 2016 election when she assumed that many Trump voters were both, quote, deplorable and irredeemable. Petraeus also granted amnesty to people that had done horrible things who had American or Iraqi blood on their hands. This was hard to do, but it was necessary because they were in fact not irreconcilable and they had a role to play in rebuilding Iraq. They would have fought to the death otherwise. Petraeus correctly assessed that the regular folk were willing to buy into a peaceful Iraq concentrated on economic development for all Iraqis. And fourth, he used the resources and guns of the United States to enforce this agreement on all actors simultaneously, and he did so competently in a way his predecessor generals did not. Petraeus's role as the enforcer of the agreement was indeed so crucial that as soon as America pulled out of Iraq and the competent enforcer of the cooperative equilibrium was gone, old wounds began festering and eventually the downward spiral of tribalism began again as the Shiite prime minister exacted revenge on the Sunnis until the Sunnis laid down their weapons and welcomed ISIS. So who could play the Petraeus role in America today? As usual, I offer four options. I hope one of them step up. First, a president like Teddy Roosevelt could play the honest broker, as we saw in the episode about Teddy and John McCain. Or as we saw in the Skoranek episode, after Trump, we have a once-in-a-generation chance for a new ideological regime, and we must not squander it. Second, the media for once in their lives, could play the role of honest broker and enforcer rather than shamelessly fanning the flames of tribalism for ratings. Third, a moderate third political party could emerge between the Bernie Sanders socialists of the left and the Trump Republicans of the right to represent the many Americans who love their country more than their party and actually know a little science and economics. Indeed, many Americans today aren't so much voting for their own party as they are voting against the worst of the other. There isn't a lot to love in American politics right now, but there is a lot of hate. A third party in the middle could change that and give concrete representation to those who believe in cooperation. Yes, our two-party system makes that hard right now, but solutions we'll discuss in the season finale, such as electoral reform and campaign finance reform, could change that. And fourth, a critical mass of citizens in each party could become the enforcer if they line up behind moderate politicians like Jeff Flake and Joe Lieberman rather than driving them out of their party. Will this be easy? No. This is not a time for sunshine, rainbows, and easy solutions. It took overwhelming force, money, and casualties before Iraqis were willing to reconcile. I despise President Trump so much that I will have a hard time forgiving people who supported his hateful presidency. There are people on the other side who feel the same about the Democrats, with some good reasons, even if there isn't moral equivalence. And yet, if Shiites can work and live with Sunnis, who may have done terrible things to them, then so can Americans. I'd rather not wait until a Romeo and Juliet scale tragedy to do so. We will have to move simultaneously 
using some of the strategies I mentioned earlier. Other solutions, such as electoral reform, or ending gerrymandering, or improving America's education system, or reducing wealth inequality, would also make ending the tribalism trap easier, which in turn would make the other problems easier to solve. Indeed, it would move us from the Nash equilibrium to the cooperative equilibrium, and we would create a virtuous circle upwards instead of a downward spiral of tribalism. Tune in to the season finale as we discuss those actionable first steps. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Demo Crises podcast. And remember, the difference between impossible and possible is one. For more content like this, we'd be grateful if you did at least one of three things. Subscribe, rate us on iTunes, or donate to us on Patreon. Demo Crises is hosted by me, Rob Cohen, and produced and distributed by Goat Rodeo.